This is the land you're on. Acknowledging the Haudenosaunee. Interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies. Providing the context needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. This episode is one in a series of three surrounding papers from the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. The materials were presented to a small group of scholars, faculty, staff, and alumni at the Boathouse at Minnowbrook Conference Center in the Adirondacks. So this is a map that we have in our collection. This map stems from the Garrett Smith papers, or to be more precise, from the Peter and Garrett Smith map collection. Sebastian Madro, assistant professor at Syracuse University's School of Information Studies, served as the curator of rare books and manuscripts at the Special Collections Research Center at the time of this recording. Garrett Smith was um, a famous uh, abolitionist, uh, 19th century philanthropist, abolitionist, but he was also, and there is no doubt about it, he was a rich white landowner um, whose father had made really his fortune in, in uh, collaboration with the Astor family and, and fur trade and all that. So Garrett Smith owned a lot of land in upstate New York, and that also meant that he had a map collection, so to speak, uh, documenting various tracts in upstate New York. And one of these maps is this map. When I saw this map first, I thought, okay, this is part of the military tract relates to Syracuse itself and didn't pay too much attention always to that title, which says a map of the late Onondaga reservation until I realized that this map dates probably to circa 1795. But what I saw is that the actual uh, Onondaga reservation at this moment is only this, uh, not even a fourth here down in the, in the corner. As you can see also the old settlement, which of course it was always called a castle and in these white documents, uh, is also uh, located here. And what I hadn't realized first was that, yeah, this is, this is already a reduced stage, so we should take one step out when we talk about all this and acknowledge that the original size of the reservation was way bigger. Um, and I think what we see in the, the map I just showed you is essentially this little cutout as it was then divvied up to a large part and turned into um, farmsteads. And we can see the, the reservation extended all the way up to Onondaga Lake. I have a question. Yes. Um, specifically that map, do we have a date on that? This is the, the, the map that Simeon DeWitt, the surveyor general at some point, drew in 1792. This was the original you know, outline of uh, the breakup of the, the former Onondaga territory here. And the map I showed you, that, that is from uh, Special Collections here in Syracuse, dates probably circa 95. So it's three years younger. This is one that I, um, I just took from the internet, credit to the Onondaga Historical Association. But as you can see, this is uh, the township of Manlius, this is the township of Pompey, mm -hmm. township of Camillus, township of Marcellus, up here is Cicero. This, and that's why I chose these maps, because when we talk about Syracuse University, the city of Syracuse, this is where Syracuse is today. Yeah. Well, right? Yeah. Well, and that's Tisco Lake, right? Syracuse University Tisco Ombuds, oh, Neil yeah. Palace. This one? That would be a Tisco Lake. Yeah. So, wow. This is the first state, <laughs> and then what I just showed you is the second state, and this, is, this should be roughly more or less what we have today, right? 
So those are even named owners to some of these plots that were sold to individuals. Exactly. In 95. 95. Yeah. Should we give some context on uh, yes. the revolution, Clinton-Sullivan campaign? Yes, I, certainly. I can help with that. I, I'm not... A, Legendary yes, indigenous performer and activist Joanne Shenandoah. Uh, my dad was on Indaga, mm -hmm. and uh, I've heard stories about what took place. The Sullivan campaign also came through Oneida territories. Of course, they said they had up to eight miles in peach orchards, for example, which were all burned. And Washington promised us that they would not tear down the cabins. And they were shocked at the quality of existence of the people. They, they expected, you know, these people in longhouses, which was true, yeah. But a lot of them lived in beautiful wood hand-hewn log houses with fine china. They did a lot of trading. The best way they could think of to get rid of the people was to burn them out and to get them out of their homes. And for me, this is a sin. You know, for the people that promised them, yeah, we'll take you in because we're good-hearted people and we'll show you how to do the corn. We'll show you, you know, the ways we know how to live naturally off the land, mm -hmm. uh, not just to take and take and take. The campaigns themselves, they were sort of, as far as I understand it, like really punishment campaigns for certain alliances. The majority had sided with the British in the Revolutionary War, right? And yeah, Chief Shenandoah, for that matter, uh, we hold a peace medal today that was given to him by George Washington, and these promises were made, right? Joanne Shenandoah was a direct descendant of John Shenandoah, also known as Skenandoah, a venerated pine tree chief of the Oneida. The Oneida broke with other members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy during the American Revolution, fighting side by side with Washington and the Continental Army. And they went to Valley Forge with 300 bushels of corn. The Onondagas did not support the alliance. We were uh, kind of separated and divided based on our alliances, and a lot of it had to do with Christianity as well. Uh, a lot of our families, they either had to move, a lot of ours went, walked to Wisconsin. You know, I mean, and uh, not to talk about all the disease and everything else that went on. Yeah, it's, I mean, the way that I understand it from the stories that I've heard, it's a legacy of trauma. I mean, having grown up on a Daga and listening to my dad and my family talk about this relationship and this splintering, the reason that those, so many of those communities chose to be originally neutral was to be not caught up in, the, in an argument between father and son, right? And so we will stay out of your family squirrel. And it was that abstention of participation that infuriated the uh, American forefathers, we'll call them. Uh, and pushed that allegiance to say, no, you cannot be neutral, you have to pick a side. And the Oneidas picked the forefather's side, had that conversation with her family and that lineage, and the rest of us said, no, we're gonna stay neutral. So that ensues the attacks and what becomes the Sullivan-Clinton campaign, uh, and, and literally the destruction of our fields, our, our homes, our, our towns, our villages, and uh, eventually our relationships with each other. The Battle of Oriskany was one of the bloodiest battles ever. And then you see the Mohawks there coming 
uh, as they're fighting the Americans and the Oneidas on this side and, and the Mohawks on that side. And, you know, you see your relative and that's gotta be like really devastating. I and mean, we've taken people there and you can feel the essence of what took place there. What a sad thing to have to experience in your life. To there's your cousin, you know. So imagine the severity of that division. Well, the sad reality is, is because of those divisions, not all Oneidas sided with the Americans, and it caused a great division even among the Oneidas. We have the Oneidas Diane Shenandoah is an Oneida Nation Wolf Clan faith keeper and incorporates indigenous principles into healing work at Syracuse University. Down, even the Clinton-Sullivan campaign came through the Oneida lands. Even though we were promised a guarantee that we would always have our lands, uh, they were basically launched the town of uh, Kenestoga, Kenestoga, so it means one stock of corn standing. That's all that was left after the Clinton-Sullivan campaign came through and burned out whole, whole villages, whole families, wiped them out. They would have a horrific, uh, competition to see who could kill the most children. I mean, it was nightmares, you know. Um, so, you know, this, seeing this map up here, you know, I'm glad you opened the windows and let this energy through because it is infuriating. This was probably the first time that white settlers really discovered the fertility of the Confederacy heartland, right? And really saw the, the, the fertility of the soil here, 16 feet high corn and all that yeah. 17. and 17 so, feet yeah, yeah i mean it's recorded in their in the in the military journals of mm -hmm. of soldiers as they're marching through mm -hmm. the, in the means of better agriculture european agriculture and they note that they've never seen a corn stalk 17 feet tall mm -hmm. uh, they destroyed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bushels of corn 300,000 bushels of corn in one storage facility. Mm. That was just one storage facility for one community. Imagine <laughs> the plenty and the bounty that a community can live off of that much food resource of one product, one food product, right? And that doesn't include the diversity of all of the foods and the orchards and the fruits and all of the different vegetables that we, that we harvested. Yeah. That many are now, we're working to get those back. We're working to get those fields back. We're working to get those seeds back. And we're working to repair our relationships. And my reading of this time period is that when, when Washington issued the order to destroy every living thing in the area, the motivation may have been there was not money to pay the Revolutionary War soldiers. And then they would fight to be given that land in payment for their war effort. Dr. Sally Rush-Wagner teaches um, in the Renee Crown University yeah, Honors Program at Syracuse. There were some that, that said, we didn't sign up to go to war against vegetables. But the, the order was to destroy every, every living thing. The women had caches of food to feed everyone for two to three years. No one would ever go hungry. And those caches where they dug up the caches of food and destroyed them. Yeah. So it was, it was a, I, I mean, how do you even, there's no word that I know in the English language for that kind of destruction. It's a genocide oh, of the land. It's a genocide of the of every living thing. It's like beyond comprehension.
listening to everybody talk about, you know, these stories that they've been told. Onondaga oh, social yes. worker Danielle Smith. Um, for me, it really connects to that trauma and just the assimilation, forced assimilation, um, and just the effects that it's had on my family over the years and how that's played out with addiction, mental health stuff, and how a lot of these stories, like Neil saying, oh, well, you know, I always heard this, heard this. Well, in my family, I didn't really hear too much. And it wasn't until I got to college and I started asking questions that I started hearing like some experiences, like I can get some stuff out of my grain, but for the most part, it's like so hard for her to talk about. And she doesn't have the, the coping skills, I guess, to be able to like talk about things that are so harmful and that are hurtful. My dad, his grandmother, she was a Gibson and she was a clan mother. Her name was Rebecca. Even in that family, there was a split because some obviously stuck with Longhouse, you know, and our ways, and then others went to the church, and then how that tore apart the family. I've been told stories about the Sullivan-Clinton campaign, like, more recently, and one thing that I guess stuck with me was to do with the locusts. They came through and they burned everything and the people like ran to the hills to hide and obviously had nothing, like didn't have food, you know, because everything was being burned down and ruined. And then that was the year that the locust came out. So the 17-year-old locust is a locust that sits within the ground mm -hmm. and it only comes out in undisturbed ground, right? So the majority of those locusts that she's talking about are under and have been unearthed and killed with the development of the city of Syracuse. And all the land. And like all those, all yeah. The, all that area there. That's all developed all now. been developed and the ground's been dug up from farming. So the locusts actually have all... Gone. They're like minimized now to... The on a current Onondaga nation. Yeah. Right? So now every, every 17 years when the locusts come out in Onondaga, we all go out and we eat them and we celebrate our survival, our mm -hmm. current existence. And every one of the, the nation members of the Haudenosaunee have their story of their survival. The Senecas uh, continue to eat roasted corn soup at ceremony. Uh, that is part of their legacy of how they were able to turn a destroyed food into something that they could be edible. Mm -hmm. So they harvested that roasted corn. So they have the corn soup that we all have, and then they have the roasted corn soup as part of their ceremony that they've adopted into it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we all have our story of how we survived this 1777 attack on all of our people in order to lay claim to what is now the Empire State. Uh, and you wonder why it's called the Empire State, because it was the gateway to the West. At this point in time, uh, we're talking about the westernmost border of the United States being Rome, New York, Forrest and Wicks. And that was where they met to make their treaty agreements with the Haudenosaunee because that was as far as the Americans at that time could go. Yeah. So we have like 1788, the Fort Stanwix Treaty, right? In which yep. officially yeah. the land was ceded. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. 
In the 1788 Treaty of Fort Stanwix, the Onondaga Nation entered into agreement with New York State to cede about 96% of their land, 2 million acres, reducing the size of the Onondaga Reservation to roughly 100 square miles. The Treaty Clause of the United States Constitution empowers only the President to make treaties, while the Supremacy Clause establishes the Constitution, federal laws pursuant to it, and treaties made under it as the law of the land. Both clauses, proponents claim, undermine the authority of New York State to enter into agreements with any sovereign nation, including Onondaga. And all that was to make and to maintain peace, right? And you also have the Canadaba Treaty that was also commissioned by George Washington mm -hmm. to create and maintain that peace with the Haudenosaunee, recognizing that even at that time, mm -hmm. though they won the war, they still were volatile yeah. and they still needed to make that peace in order to become the country that it is today. And so uh, when I hear uh, people in America say, you lost the war, well, there wasn't really a war because mm -hmm. you made a treaty with us, so there wasn't, because if there was, you would have lost. Yeah. But we decided to make that decision to say, how can we work together? Let's share the land, let's share this space, right? And so a shared space, the shared space of the city of Syracuse then becomes Syracuse and this pushes us to a, a little small square, two by four miles, yeah. right? Ephraim Webster was the first real settler who came into the land and tried to become part of the community and communicated mm -hmm. with Onondagas. He took an Onondaga wife, had children. Uh, we still have Websters at Onondaga as a connection and lineage to that relationship. But as soon as more settlers came into the land, he started negotiating away all of that square and divvying up parcels as what would be called treaties with New York State, not sanctioned or not uh, ratified by the United States government, therefore illegal treaties, in essence. Uh, and that's, to my understanding, how in just these three years, you go from that large square to the smaller square uh, and that Ephraim Webster was a really key character mm -hmm. in that process of moving all of that land out of the dispossession of the Onondagas. And as soon as those more and more, uh, we'll call it uh, Eurocentric civilization showed up in the area, um, new buildings, new parties, uh, new celebrations. Uh, it wasn't uh, in Ephraim's best interest to show up with an Onondaga wife and child. So he abandoned his Onondaga family and mm -hmm. took a new wife, took new children, and then passed on all of the land that he had taken from each one of these land sales and gave them to his white children. Thus, once again, dispossessing Onondaga from more of their land. He had the Onondaga's trust, right? He acted as their translator in the treaty negotiations, essentially. Yeah. Yep. And apparently negotiated out of that uh, a significant portion that he just... He negotiated parcels for himself. Yeah. Yep. Many did. Yeah. And this is really, this is so key to what we are talking about here, I think, because look, what had, you know, this is, you just explained this map, essentially, that, that, right? That map, How yeah. we came from the last map, the Onondaga Association map, to the map that we have at Special Collections here. So how, all of a sudden, what was this before, which was also only a fraction of the original Onondaga territory, right? Right. And how even that fraction became a fraction of that fraction, which is today's reservation, right? And right, and then there's another little box that's squared out of that even, 
which was another uh, move by Ephraim Webster. <laughs> so Ephraim Webster... Michelle Shenandoah is the editor of Rematriation Magazine. But I thought that when you're looking at the Webster track, so to speak, right, is we're in the square there is like the upper left-hand yeah, corner box. part. But if yeah. you're looking, this was the whole reservation track that was from the previous one that touches like yeah. the bottom of Onondaga Lake. That's a, that's well, a was huge the, piece he of He was the land. first guy that came in. They made space for him to live. And then as more people came in, he started making negotiations for more land. He was the initial negotiator. Yes. For all that? For about 20 years. But did he also negotiate maybe land sales that happened? That were he negotiated on land the sales as well. Here. Yeah. yeah. And just like to make this clear for us, here, you know, this is Onondaga Creek. Yeah. So essentially somewhere here is probably Syracuse University today, right? The lots, these lots are each 250 acres, as you can see. Have you been able to look in, like, um, is there another place to find, like, the transactions, like the sales from each of those Yeah, New York, New York State has a treaty list of dates, and all of those, those agreements within New York State and the Onondagas and the Cugans and Senecas, those are all... Ephraim was part of that conversation sitting with the Onondagas. So were they sold to the state or they're just recorded in the state? They were treaties made with the state that were never ratified by the U.S. Senate. So that's where the, the conversation about who really owns the land in this area comes into play because you have a conversation about who signed the treaties, who was the treaty with. These treaties were with New York State and not the U.S. government. How can a state make a treaty with a nation? They can't. Right. Yeah. They so can't. that's why they're all illegal treaties. In 1790, Congress passed the Trade and Intercourse Act, including the provision that no sale of lands made by any Indians or any nation or tribe of Indians within the United States shall be valid to any person or persons or to any state, whether having the right of preemption to such lands or not unless the same shall be made and duly executed at some public treaty held under the authority of the United States. Yeah, the states cannot make treaties. Yeah. And this is where you're saying this is a white uh, man. White man. Ephraim Webster who... Negotiating land. Right, because he had... White. A ma oh, well, he married. sort of, I don't know if he married... He married in. He married in, he had an Onondaga wife, yeah. so he had Onondaga kids, yeah. which he later yeah. disowned. So, but he then went on to negotiate all, all of those land, land with yep. the state, which the state had no right state to. State and independent landowners, and then brought in New York State to make those deals, to pay for them. Hmm. So, so, this is the next So he personally time. took the land and the money himself? Well, that's where, the, where Onondaga has that little square that's taken out. In one of his last deals, he negotiated those 900 acres for himself. It's amazing. So that's where, you know, the town of Onondaga, you go on uh, Commissary Road, which turns into Cleveland Road, and you're on nation territory, but you go the other way on Route 80, and you're literally off. That's all actually Onondaga territory through Webster Pond. Wow. The orchards, too, like all the way up yeah. in Lafayette. And all I just found ours. that out recently, wow. that those were our trees that they sell to everyone and you go there in the fall sure, yeah. and take pictures. Yeah. And There's a lot of greed yeah. involved. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, there's no doubt about it. 
If we want to talk about greed, maybe let's look at the next document. Okay. Oh boy, this is something. All right. Wow, we, that was. Get ready. <laughs> the Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Cayella Breed, Neil Paulus, and Jim O'Connor. Conference recorded by Sebastian Conde and Andrew Morrow. Post-production work by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit the Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.